Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. It's Tech Tuesday, and uh, Ben, we're doubling down today. But I really want us to uh, understand how our melanin operates with today's uh, technology. Let me welcome to the show. She is a professor of African-American studies at Princeton University. I'm leading with that because she, she led with black. And she's also the founding director of the Ida B. Wells Data Lab. She wrote a book. It's called Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Jim Code. I like that. Let me welcome Ms. Ruha, Professor Dr. Ruha Benjamin. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me on your show. It's an honor and a pleasure. Thank no, you, listen, you are doing the work. I, I am... I am a vessel. This this program is about getting information to the people. Um, first, what was the impetus for writing Race After Technology? Give us the backstory. So there were a few things. I was noticing a number of headlines, major papers covering stories in which they were talking about something called racist robots. That was their way of talking about the way that technology can actually further discrimination and bias. And so I was noticing these headlines and I was thinking about this much longer history and relationship that black folks have with technology. First of all, being considered technology, being considered robots or automata, but then also the way that these new technologies can hide discrimination in important ways. So I wanted to write about it, think about it, and provide some tools that we can use to talk about and ultimately challenge these forms of discrimination. All right. Give us a couple of ways in which uh, racism is baked into, and, and again, you know, we've, we talked about this before on the show. Uh, this is why day one, once I decided we were going to do Tech Tuesday, I'm like, get your children to learn how to code. We need to be at the forefront of coding and creating the tech. Why? Because we need to be there, you know. And if coding is left up to a population of among whom 75% have no relationship with black people, that's a poll that was taken by the Washington Post four or five years ago. That hasn't changed. I think the chasm has gotten wider. On purpose, there's a willful lack of understanding and centering themselves in everything. And I don't think they're inherently racist or they hate black people, but I think if you don't have to consider black people, you're not going to consider black people. So when you're doing your tech, you're going to consider yourself first. I just bought an Oculus and I'm in it, getting my, giving myself a headache, vertigo and nausea. And I'm like, okay, I'm picking skins. There's only one black skin and it's a black man. And I'm like, all right, so I guess I could pick the green person. I guess I could be an alien because I don't want to be a black man. And but there were like four or five versions of white, beige, yellow. You know, there was yellow options. Options. (laughs) They had many options. And we're the most colorful people. I'm like, we need to have at least 20 complexions of blackness to pick because you and I are considered maybe on the light side, but we're not even the same complexion. What the hell? So that's a good example. Well, we might just talk about that at the level of skin and representation, the kind of cosmetic representation. And the fact is what we're talking about goes much deeper. It goes deeper than, than, than just skin. And so let's just start with something that we all do every day on social media, whether it's Twitter or whether it's Facebook, what have you. And you know how you see those ads in the corner on the margins. You might have been looking for shoes on a website and then all of a sudden you see a shoe ad. Now, those ads, the same ads that are can be can tailored for, be tailored to you, they you know showing you things that you might like, 
At the same time, you might not be seeing ads for opportunities like jobs or education that are being targeted away from you, in which the people who are creating the ads basically say, we don't want people like X, Y, and Z to see these opportunities. And in fact, there are some class action lawsuits around housing discrimination in which specifically elderly people in DC were not shown ads for new housing developments because the people who are creating those ads didn't want them. <laughs> and so just remember that even if you can be taken tailored for something in terms of targeted marketing, that also means that you can be excluded. So that's on one level, just at the terms of being a consumer and not having certain opportunities, but it really goes even deeper than that. In almost every area of our life, there are technical systems making important decisions about what opportunities we can have. If you take, for example, healthcare, in, in our healthcare system, there's software systems being used to allocate resources to decide how much time you get to spend with a doctor, how much you know, patient care you get. And recent studies have shown that some of these, these healthcare algorithms actually, actually are excluding black patients unwittingly because they're being trained to use, uh, on data that's been collected in the past from these same hospital systems. So if you imagine if in the past, if humans have been discriminating against you, that's the data that we're, being, we're using to train these automated systems. And it, this applies to every area of our lives. So let's say in my grandma's generation, she would have walked up to the hospital and she would have seen when she was a young woman, a big whites only sign hanging there. She would have known you're not welcome here. You need to go. Now I can walk through the front door of the hospital for the most part, but there may very well be a software system making decisions about my care that's excluding me from certain from certain resources. And that's what I'm calling the new gym code because it's the discrimination is often hidden. We don't even know when it's happening. And so as a very first step, we need a language to talk about it so we can start to challenge it because it really is an extension of the long civil rights movement. It's just taking on a new guise. It's not something brand new. It's an extension of these older forms of discrimination. 866-801-8255. Uh, Professor Ruha Benjamin is here. Her book is Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Jim Code. As you're talking, I'm also thinking about how we have fewer doctors than ever before. We have fewer, and I, I as well as Wednesday, tomorrow, I have two doctors. I got three doctors on tomorrow. I don't play around, including Dr. Lena Wen. I'm, I'm multi. We're going to have black doctors. We're going to have Asia. We're going to have as many doctors, but there are fewer black doctors, uh, particularly black male doctors that coupled with the med- medical school, they teach again, an indoctrinated form of medicine. They're not teaching this much on nutrition, even though 90% of our problems come through what we put in our bodies and food as food. So a lot of us come into medicine with anti-blackness that we have to fight. Absolutely. That we we have to fight, you know, so we're even indoctrinated to see. I remember growing up thinking if you were on welfare, you know, because my father was, you know, horrible on this. It was like he he was indoctrinating me. You don't play Mm -hmm. with those kids because, you know, they or this person's a bastard. Like he had these very distinct views of black people that I was like, you know, growing up with. And I was like, wait a minute, that makes no sense. I was a child that challenged everything. So that was good. But even we have anti-black behavior. So how do we get a fair shake if even some doctors who look like us don't see us 
as valuable. Yeah, formal, formal education in no way correlates to someone being more enlightened or more conscious or critical about racism, about any kind of inequality. So we do see these patterns of anti-Blackness among medical students, among physicians. Now, so if you take the decisions that they have made about patients, let's say ignoring a Black patient when they say they're feeling pain, and that becomes part of the record that record becomes the data that's used to train technology to make decisions about patient care. So it's gonna reproduce this same cycle. But the good news is, is that there's a, there is a younger generation of, of medical students who are challenging this. And so I've been called in often to different medical pro school programs where the students are like, this curriculum is old school. They are not teaching us what we need to know to practice. And so for example, there's a wonderful organization called White Coats for Black Lives that are medical students that have basically, they one of the things that they do is they issue report cards on the medical schools to show all of the forms of anti-Blackness that is embedded in the curriculum, is embedded in the clinical training, et cetera, et cetera. And so even as we're pointing out these problems, it's important to note that there are, are people who are organizing themselves to challenge these institutionalized forms of, of racism that we can be in alliance with and build on. Oh, I, I love that. I just uh, typed to Smith to get somebody on from White Coats for, for Black Lives because we need that. All right. How else, uh, you know, I, I always use the example, and I thought it was me. I thought something was wrong with me. You go, like, back in the day when you can go to the airport freely, you go wash your hands after you go to the bathroom, and you have to keep putting your hand under the sink for it to recognize, and then with the water, and then you look over and a white person comes, and it's just pouring for them, and you're like, is this one broken? You go to the next one. It's not working. They can't read the melanin because it was not yeah. programmed for the melanin. Right. Something and it doesn't, require, that. it doesn't even require the person who's creating this to hate black people. It just has to rely on the whiteness of tech development, meaning no one was there when they were testing it to have different shades. And so, again, that's a really simple example that illustrates a much bigger pattern where the consequences is not just you not being able to get soap on your hand. It might mean you not getting into a, 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 a educational program. It might mean that the police are looking at you a little, a little longer than someone else. And so a lot of this is taking shape in the context of who gets parole or not when those decisions are made by automated systems, who is um, who gets resources in in college or not. And so, you know, the, the, the hand washing example, it's like a sign of a bigger problem. It's like the tip of the iceberg. And so what the book shows is the connection between that soap dispenser and the kinds of predictive policing that are used in black neighborhoods to decide where to send more cops or not and to and not to look in white neighborhoods for similar kinds of, of violations. And so the issue is all around us. And so now that we have a language to talk about it in the new Jim Code, we can begin to see it clearly and we can begin to organize and pass laws that protect us from it, which is something that's happening. We can start to train young programmers and technicians. So you started off by saying everyone needs to code. And at the same time, everyone who's learning to code needs to learn history, <laughs> needs to learn sociology. They need to have racial literacy. And so the learning goes both ways. It's not just that um, our kids need to know how to program. It's everybody who's learning how to program needs to, to understand the history and the society in which they're developing these tools. But as you're saying this today, 2021, there's a movement all over the, all over the country to not teach history. How do I mean? So it's 
and and you see it, you see, you know why they're doing it. So, you know, I don't know why we're not fighting harder because this is unsustainable. You know, it really does. It, it in some ways, it is an acknowledgement that that knowledge is power. They know that if kids read about about the true history of this country and understand how our laws were crafted, how our educational system, that consciousness is empowering. And it and it actually it doesn't just become an academic exercise. It actually changes the way you relate to other people. It changes the expectations you have for politicians and for people in power. And so, you know, it's not something simply that's, you know, just a sort of factoids about history. It changes the society when we actually are learning the true history. We expect more of each other. And so it is, it is one of the fights of our time that we are um, we are whitewashing the curriculum even more than it already was. I was going to say, um, <laughs> I didn't think I didn't think it could get any worse. Uh, Professor Ruha Benjamin, uh, am I pronouncing your first name correctly? Perfectly. Okay, I just because I'm like never <laughs> seen this name before. What's the um, origin of Ruha? It's Arabic. It's Arabic, and it means of the spirit. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Take us back to Crenshaw Boulevard, Boulevard in Los Angeles. Uh, tell us. Tell us what formed you into this person who was fighting not just the good fight on racial uh, justice, but also technological justice. So, you know, the neighborhood I grew up in L.A. is like a lot of predominantly black and Latinx neighborhoods in terms of over policing. And so I grew up with the constant presence of police, whether it was kids from my school being rounded up and thrown up against the fence by the school, whether it's the helicopters over our heads. And so I grew up with a very acute sense that I was being watched, but not in a good way. (laughs) Um, And so it's that same kind of um, that sense of being watched that's led me to think about how those same processes of policing are now being embedded in ways that are, are harder to detect. And so when we think about surveillance technologies, whether it's facial recognition, whether it's predictive forms of policing, these systems are becoming more and more embedded in our everyday life so that we don't see it and hear it in the same way I did as a kid. And it's just as important for us to be able to know what's out there so that we can begin to challenge it. And for those who might feel like, oh, this makes you even more paranoid or even more worried, just know that in almost every locale that I've been to and talked about race after technology, there are local and regional organizations that are organizing around this. And there have been some major wins, including in my hometown of LA, there's an organization called Stop LAPD Spying, which actually brought an end to that predictive policing um, system that was being used there because of they, they organized the community to challenge it. And so we don't just have to put up with this. We can actually work together to push back. I love it. Uh, again, the book is Race After Technology. Uh, Ida B. Wells Data Lab, what is this? This is a lab for students. I mentioned earlier that we need to start training our students differently. Those who are going into technology need to know the history and sociology. Those who are going to see humanities and social sciences need to understand the technology. And so I'm trying to get them young (laughs) before they move into their professions to give them the tools across the board so that they can, no matter what profession they go into, they can become very critical and creative in the way that they see technology adopted. For example, in a lot of big companies, they use systems to screen out applicants before that person ever sees a human interviewer. 
they have to sit and talk to a computer screen. And we assume that that's objective and neutral, but it's not. <laughs> it's again, being trained to look for qualities that are already in that company. So if you have a majority white and male company, you are likely gonna get more of that in the applicants that you flag and that you want more of. And so for example, I want my students to go into these workplaces and be the first ones to raise their hand and be like, um, I know something about this technology that you don't know. And this is the reason why it's discriminatory and we need to do something about it. And so the lab is a place to germinate and foment that critical consciousness as they go out into the world. Um, Dr. Benjamin, as you were growing up in, uh, you know, Los Angeles, and I love the show All American because it allows me to see, you know, that, that area, Crenshaw and all of that, uh, through, of course, you know, fiction, but not, it's based on a true story. Uh, who inspired you to want to pursue this? You know, again, it wasn't just because a lot of kids grow up with the helicopters and go, this sucks. You're, you're, you were the teacher long before you even knew you were going to be a teacher. Who inspired you? Was it your grandmother? Um, definitely. My grandmother is one of those people, her and her homegirls. I would say all the women who she went to college with, um, they inspired me in the sense that they encouraged me. They always were um, expecting, you know, good of me and they felt pride in the things that I set out to do. So definitely that would, that, that continues to be like the chorus at my back. It's like a cheerleading squad that you have throughout your lifetime, even when they've passed on. But even more concretely in terms of this field of study, when I went to graduate school at UC Berkeley, I didn't know that I really wanted to study science and technology and took, I, until I took a class taught by Professor Troy Duster. And Duster, as I would later learn, is actually the grandson of Ida B. Wells. And so he has pursued sociology, a, a career in academia, but I think he carries on this legacy of speaking truth to power that he then really inspired me to continue. 866-801-8255, you teach, and I'm, I'm struggling with this right now because I'm trying to figure out, and maybe you can help me, maybe we can talk about it. Let's go to a break. I want to go to a break, but I want you to think about this. Um, mm -hmm. I believe that every time we talk about white and racism and race and race and white supremacy and all of that, we give it power. You know, mm. uh, there's an African proverb until you, uh, you, you, the last time you speak a person's name, as long as you speak a person's name, they'll never die. I feel mm. like we're giving the same power and energy to whiteness. And mm. I want to like not do that because it's a made up construct. Why do we give it so much power? Why do we keep talking about it? Why do we even give it energy? Um, but I think there's a lot of money right now and um, diversity and inclusion and, all, you know, but We've had, you know, affirmative action and diversity inclusion, and it hasn't changed anybody. You know, there's a lot of George Floyd guilt money going around. A lot of, mm -hmm. a lot of people have gotten a lot of money, but it's not going to change the, the culture. So let, let's mm -hmm. talk about, like, what can we do um, yeah. to, and, and is that the right approach? Because I'm constantly trying to figure out how we get to freedom. Yeah. And I, I don't think we get to freedom through... Yeah. constantly having to dodge racism. I think we just come out and just be great. But let's talk about it. Uh, you know, Dr. Ruha Benjamin is here. She's got an amazing book uh, where she also shares a little bit of her story, her backstory. She's getting into, you know, the naming of her child. And I mean, it's called Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Gem Code. I know also um, in publishing you know, there is this, you know, anti-racism and, you know, it's like this whole, you, you can make money right now writing about this stuff. But is this the, the best way to, to eradicate 
racism or can we just do it by being excellent and then daring somebody uh, i wish you would and then have i wish you would energy you know i think we have to work on multiple fronts i mean in every single way that all of the harms are created those are all conduits for change and so we do need so to diagnose what we're actually up against what we're actually fighting and so when we think about when we go to the actual doctor we don't just want to hear all the good news if something is really wrong with us. <laughs> we don't want to sugarcoat it. So when you get a diagnosis from your actual doctor, that's that's your marching orders. Then you know what you have to do. But oftentimes, I think when it comes to social ills, what's plaguing us in terms of our politics, our economic system, our our you know our our social system. We don't want to hear the full truth. We don't want the full diagnosis. Um, and so that to me is a kind of hypocrisy is that when it's going to save our actual life, we want to know the truth. But when it's going to save our collective life, when it's going to actually heal uh, us as a collective, then we want to have the, going back to the education conversation. We want only the good side. We don't want to know what's plaguing us. So when it actually, when it comes to moving forward, we do, we need to talk about um, the harms. But as you say, we can't just stay in that place. That's not the only site of struggle. We have to actually also live what we want to see in the future by being excellent, by, by treating one another with the same qualities that we want to, the institutions and the, and the world around yes. us to treat us. And so mm. that's, that's absolutely true. And it, yeah. And in fact, that's the, a lot, a huge part of the focus of my next book, which is about how everyday people, communities, are working to seed the, the qualities, the kinds of things that we wanna see right in our own backyards and our own neighborhoods and communities, not waiting for it to float down from on high. And so there's wow. so many examples of that that we can look to. Yeah, we just had Shavar Jeffries on. And I mean, it's like, I got exhausted listening to everything that he, you know, school board, start a school, you know, but when you have, whether you have children or not, you live in a world and you want to, want to see it better, it requires something of you that many of us, not, not this channel. Cause you know, the people who listen to this show, this is again, to pay for radio already tells you you're somebody who cares about things on a deeper level. No one's paying for radio, you know, especially when you can get every free podcast out there under the sun, but that means you, you actually are concerned about things. You want the tools to be able to build a better life. So I'm talking to the converted here, which is also part of the problem, right? In this space that you're in, Dr. Benjamin, you are talking to people who want to know. So all of the conferences, you're not going to show up if you're a tiki torch carrying, khaki pant wearing, hood wearing, Nazi symbol having, uh, QAnon waving flag person. You're not going to show up to the conference. You're not going to read the books. You're not going to study how you can be better. You're good. So we're preaching to the choir. How do we get to those folks? But, but have you ever heard a bad choir sing? Cause I have. <laughs> and so just because you're part of the choir doesn't mean you don't need to practice, doesn't mean you don't have to put in the work <laughs> to actually make music that that yeah. lifts people's souls. And so there is even among those who already convinced things need to change. There's so much that we need to work on still. A lot of times we can stand for things publicly, but in our own private relationships, it, our ideals are not reflected. So we're not practicing what we preach in many ways. And so I do think that there's a lot of room for those who already um, are committed to changing the world, who knows that things are wrong. There's still so much to learn, so much to practice. A lot of times 
we get tired too. <laughs> we are, you know, there's a kind of battle fatigue as well. And so in the same way that we need our bodies to be nourished and well, our spirits also need that. And we have to periodically refuel and connect with people who we don't have to put on a mask for that we can like, you know, be ourselves with. And so it's not either, or it's not like you're on the right side or the wrong side. Even when you know things have to change, there's a lot that we have to do to keep the momentum, the stamina, to keep the struggle going so we can pass the baton onto the next generation and not collapse in exhaustion. Cicero said a room without books is like uh, a body without a soul. And I'm looking at you in this room full of books. So you're apparently very soulful. What do you, what, what was the book that, that uh, I, I like, I like t- calling it that road to Damascus. What was the book that, that changed your, your perspective on the world? Ooh, one, I have to choose one. Oh man. All right. Give well... us, give us a, you know, the, the, you know, for me, you know, it was my Angelou, you know, cause I was a big Stephen King, Judy Bloom, Judy Krantz, blah, blah, you know, I was mm-hmm. a dirty little kid, like to read Succubus, Incubus, all this nasty mm-hmm. horror stuff. And then Maya Angelou, like mm. I read, I know why the cage bird sings and it had never read anything like that in my life. And I might've been 10 or 11 and I couldn't relate, relate because it wasn't my story, but for the first, the words and, and, you know, yeah. the silence and, and just that story. And then I had to read the whole, all of them. Then I had to go get all of the books. And then that led yeah. me to, you know, uh, Alice Walker, Tony Mars, you know, then, yeah. you know, Zorno Hurston, Ralph Ellison, black boy is then, you know, I was on, I was off to the races, Peary Thomas down these mean streets. I just remember being a teenager, yeah. just like, ah, just voraciously gobbling up all of that. Um, yeah. roots, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, what, when what I was, was 13, so when I was 13, I was at that time, I had moved from Los Angeles and I was living in South Carolina where the whole way that things are set up are dramatically different than in LA. And I was trying to figure the world out. Tell us how, what's the major difference? Right. It went from, so my, my dad's job took us to South Carolina and things were, so in LA, my, my neighborhood was all black and Latino. I I rarely, the only time I saw a white person or a Persian person or anyone else was at the Baha'i center over on rodeo road. And in, in South Carolina, things were, like, you know, the railroad, one side of the tracks and the other, black and white football town. And it was very stark in terms of the class and racial divide there. And I was trying to figure it out. And I turned to, when I was 13, the autobiography of Malcolm X. And so that was my first entryway into really understanding through through Malcolm's life experience why things were the way that they were and to see the transformation that he went through. And so again, this was, I think, the the seed that sort of led me down to really wanting to read the, you know, all the other things that eventually I have and to study what I have and to teach what I do now. That in that uh, town, you said Baha'i uh, mm-hmm. and I actually uh, had a Baha'i on to talk about the, the, did, were you raised in the Baha'i family? I was, yeah. So my dad became a Baha'i in LA in the 70s. He went to India at, to a youth conference, met my mom who gave a talk at this conference in the 70s. The day after they met, they decided to get married. <laughs> and a month later, they got married after they telegraphed my grandma in LA and got all the family on board. And so wow. they raised my brother and I, um, I was born in India and raised in LA, South Carolina. So raised 
with the Baha'i teachings, which if for those who don't know, has two big things at its core. One is justice. So the best beloved of all things in my sight is justice and the oneness of humanity. Meaning despite all of these racial class, religious divisions at our core, all human beings are from one creator and we share a common spirit. How do we get everybody else on board with that philosophy, with that truth? Because I, I let me tell you, I, I've, and I've said it before, and I'm trying to, to keep my optimism. I was always a glass half full. We could do anything. This can, you know, every day I get up, I'm like, really? This is where we are? Really? This is, really? Y'all did what? Oh, you you gonna elect Trump again? Really? So I'm at that point. I'm at the... I'm at that point, right? How do we get that to become the mantra? I think, you know, there, again, the answers are many, but I think for me, what it comes down to when I get frustrated with what's going on out there, I ask myself, well, am I really living these values and these ideals? Is this showing up in my relationships, in the way that I operate, in my workplace, in my community? Because as soon as you start really focusing on holding yourself to account, it doesn't give a whole lot of time and energy to really be taken in by all of the other shortcomings of everything around you. And so for me, that also inspires me when I see people actually living justice, living oneness, living love. It actually reflects back at me and fuels me. And so I think bringing it home to our, you know, our own commitments is one way. It's not the only way. We still need to make demands of our political system, our economic system to ensure it's just, but also to think about our own lives and to think about whether we're living it too. I wish your book was called The New Gym Code. I think that that would have been a better title. Uh, Thank you. Your editors, mm, I'm shaking Thank my fist you. at them. Right there, you The New Gym Code. How about this? You could call it that because a lot of people do. They're like, it's we just don't call it what we want. That's it. <laughs> I mean, it's right there. The magic is right there. The new Jim code is like, it's perfect. But uh, the book is, we're going to tweet it out. Race after technology, abolitionist tools. <laughs> too, too much going on, but I appreciate the, I mean, your work, uh, you have an open seat here. We'd love to come back and chat Thank with you, you about all of the things that you are working on. And if you are at Rutgers, Rutgers, they could take your, what are you teaching this semester? Um, this semester, I'm not teaching, but in the spring, I'll be teaching two classes, one around science fiction and one about um, bodies, political what, what, bodies. What, what's the science fiction? Is it, what is it? Octavia oh, Butler? What are we doing? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. That was the other book I was going to choose. I was which one? Deciding. The Exogenous? Okay. What, what are you? Which one? I will. In the spring, I'm going to definitely teach Parable, Parable of the Sower. The sower. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, and then some of her other interviews and, and short stories as well. So I'll That's send you that know. syllabus. <laughs> okay. And what's the other class? The other class is called political bodies. And so it's like about like health and medicine, the kind of issues oh. we're talking about. If you're oh, at Princeton, right. uh, no Dr. Benjamin, thank you for being here. Ruha Benjamin, Pleasure. get her Garrett. book. I'm going to give the right title. It is Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Gym Code. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to the Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.